Follow along in your Bibles as I read. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Father, you know how you sovereignly chose these verses to graciously challenge me in my life and to sanctify me and to shape me and to mold me into who you would want me to be. And I can't think of any other verses in the scriptures that have impressed me and impacted me and affected me more than these. And so I pray that uh, your word would come through loud and clear today as we consider something that is humanly impossible to do, but that Christ has modeled for us and who also empowers us to be able to do the same for those of us who are in Christ. And so we ask that you would help us today to bring joy to Christ and honor to Christ by living out this text for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all know that there is no such thing as a perfect church, but that doesn't stop us from thinking that we might find one someday. We all hold out hope that there's got to be a church out there where everyone gets along with one another and everyone works together as a team towards achieving a common goal. I mean, can you just imagine for a moment with me going to a church where there is never any fighting or arguing or disagreements or divisions or conflicts or offenses and where there is perfect peace and harmony? Can you imagine that? Well, even if we were able to find that perfect church, it wouldn't be perfect as soon as we joined it. And the reason there are no perfect churches is because there are no perfect people, and guess what? Churches are made up of people. And as you know well, people are sinful. Particularly, we are all very selfish and all very prideful. Selfishness and pride are what cause strife between us. They're the reason why we have such a hard time getting along with one another. I think these two sins, selfishness and pride, are the greatest enemies of unity and have destroyed many marriages, many families, many careers, and many churches. Now, this obviously requires us to be very honest with ourselves, but there is nobody that you like better than yourself. There's nobody I like better than myself. That's just the way it is. We, we like ourselves better than anyone else, and it's an undeniable fact of human nature that we are all inherently selfish and we're all inherently prideful. We are naturally inclined to act like we are the most important person in the universe. We're prone to put ourselves first before everyone else. We're always looking out for number one. We always want to have things our way. And so naturally, when you get a group of selfish, prideful human beings together in a home or a subdivision or a workplace or a school or a church you're bound to have problems. But what would happen? What would happen if everyone in your family, everyone in your neighborhood, everyone at your office, everyone at your 
school or your church, our church, treated each other as more important than themselves? What would it be like if everyone put others first and cared about everyone else's interests more than their own? Well, what would it be like if no one ever insisted on getting their own way? I mean, just think about that in your family. If no one ever insisted on getting their own way, whether that be your spouse, your children, your parents, your brother, your sister, that, that would be a game changer, wouldn't it? What if everyone was committed to making sure that others got to do or have what they wanted, even if that meant that they couldn't have what they wanted or couldn't do what they wanted? Well, that's exactly what Paul was challenging the believers in Philippi to to think this way and to act this way. And we've discovered already in our study of this letter that the Philippian church was a model church in many ways. And it's obvious that Paul had a very special relationship with his church, that he loved these people very much. He called them in chapter 4, verse 1, his beloved brethren. But as you read through this letter that he sent them, you pick up some hints along the way that the believers in Philippi were not as unified as they should have been. It seems there was some kind of conflict or strife in the church. For example, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing or arguing. And in chapter 4, he calls out two women who had gotten sideways with one another. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 4, I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So it appears that the Philippians had given Satan an opportunity to create disharmony or disunity in their church. And his foot was in the door, if you will, and he was threatening to to blow the door wide open and split the church apart. And so Paul pleaded with them to all get along and not allow any disagreements to divide them. And he made his initial plea for unity in chapter 1, verse 27. We studied this last week. Paul said, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul was exhorting them to be unified in their commitment to their primary task of protecting and promoting the gospel. And so whether or not he ever saw these beloved saints again, he wasn't sure whether he would be released or be executed, but the one thing he wanted more than anything else was for them to resolve whatever differences they had between them so they could stop contending against each other and get back to contending alongside one another for the cause of the gospel. And we saw, said last week that, that in order for any church, including this church, to accurately reflect the gospel and effectively reach others with the gospel, that its members need to work together side by side, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, working as one, and joyfully endure any suffering that might come as a result of their commitment to the cause of Christ. That's what Paul went on to say in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, and that too from God, for to you it has been granted in Christ's sake not only... Uh, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in be in me. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, again, forget the chapter breaks. They weren't there in the original letter, obviously. But notice he says, first thing, therefore. Therefore. And so he's connecting what he's about to say with what he just said. And so Paul in these first four verses of chapter 2 is just continuing to build on the exhortation that he had begun in the previous verses. And and, and here he directly and fully addressed the issue of unity that he had kind of subtly and briefly introduced back in verse 27. And so what we see here in in, in verses 1 through 4 are elements of unity, three elements to be exact, three elements of unity that every church must understand and 
put into practice or apply in order to experience the kind of unity that God intended for us to enjoy as his people, but also the kind of unity that brings joy and honor to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to understand that, that, um, that this is what Christ wants. This is what Christ wants for us as a church. This is what he longs for. This is what he prays for. We're going to see that in just a moment. But what are the three elements here of unity? Well, first of all, Paul shares the motives for unity, uh, why we should seek unity. Secondly, he shows us the marks of unity, what it means to have unity. And then finally, he shows us the means to unity. How, How can we achieve this unity that he desires for the church? And really, the bottom line of this whole text, this whole sermon is very simple, and here it is. I'm going to tell you up front, so in case I lose you somewhere along the way, you fall asleep, right? Get it now, write it down. Here it is. Humility is the key to harmony. That's it. That's the bottom line of this message. Humility is the key to harmony. If selfishness and pride are the cause of disunity and disharmony, then the cure is for everyone to act selflessly and humbly toward one another. It sounds very simple, doesn't it? But it's a lot more challenging to practice. So let's look at these three elements together of of unity. First of all, the motives for unity. Why why should we seek unity? Verse 1. Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Paul here began by explaining why we as Christians should pursue unity. He gives us the incentives for unity. And what he was doing here is he was appealing to four spiritual realities or or certainties for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you say it doesn't sound very certain because he's asking the question if or suggesting these are, these are conditions, but what Paul used here is what's called first-class conditions, and that if is better translated since or because. So how we should translate this is since there is encouragement in Christ or because there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit or because of the affection and compassion we have in Christ. And in other words, Paul wasn't questioning that these things were true. He was affirming that they were true. And it's assumed that every Christian enjoys these four things. We've been encouraged by Christ. We've been consoled by Christ's love. We've been, we share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit whom Christ sent to us, and we've experienced Christ's affection. We've experienced Christ's compassion. Are these things all true of you? Have you experienced all these things? Do you enjoy all of these things as Christians? Absolutely. And because we enjoy these four benefits or blessings as a result of being united with Christ, this should motivate us and not just motivate this, us, but even obligate us to be united with other Christians. Why? Because this is what we share in common with other believers. This is what draws us together. This is what binds us together. This is, this is what makes it possible for us to get along with one another, these things. We've received these, these four things from God through our union, union with Christ, and we should want to reflect them to others who are part of the body of Christ. How can we receive these things from the Lord and not be willing to share these things with one another? In fact, we actually show our gratitude for being one with Christ by striving to be one with other Christians. And when we refuse to get along with with other Christians, we're showing ingratitude to Christ. And again, so... Again, we've taken these precious blessings that God has given us. We should want to give them back to one another, but we should also want to give back to what is give back to Christ what's precious to Him. I mean, unity among Christians is precious to Christ. This is what Christ wants most for us. 
for his followers. In fact, I would even say it this way, that this is on the top of Christ's prayer list as he intercedes on our behalf. You know, Jesus is praying for us right now. You say, well, what is he praying? Well, he gave us an example of what he is praying now back in his, the, high, the high priestly prayer. Uh, what we know is the high priestly prayer, the prayer that he prayed for his disciples in the upper room in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, verse 20, this is exactly what Jesus prayed. He said to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. In other words, I'm not just praying for these 11 guys in the upper room. I'm praying for all those who will come to faith in me through their witness. That includes us sitting here this morning. He says, I pray for all of them that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that also they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There's some rich theology there, but you can't help but see the, the unity described there by Jesus of the Trinity, the unity that the Father shared with the Son and that the Spirit shared with them as well. And there was this unity, this perfect unity between the members of the Trinity that we are to reflect as those who have been affected by the triune God. One commentator summarized verse 1 here in these words. He says, this verse reminds the Philippian church of the many great blessings they have in their congregational fellowship in Christ. These blessings stem from God, whose encouragement, consolation, love, fellowship, sympathy, and affection have been poured out on the community. Yet the community itself, as a mutual association of Christ's followers, also imitates their God in encouraging, consoling, and loving one another. With such bounteous congregational benefits... It only makes sense that the believers in Philippi stand together, not only united against their persecutors, but also unified in putting off all prideful dissensions in their midst. And I think it's important that we note that Paul's initial appeal for unity in verse 27 was really in regards to our enemies, our opponents. He's talking about that you need to be unified, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents. In other words, how will we stand against our opponents? We need to be united. United we stand, right? Divided we fall. But sometimes the greatest attacks against unity are not external, but internal. They come from within the church because Christians can't get along with one another. And so these blessings that we've experienced in Christ should serve as powerful motives, incentives to pursue unity among the other members of Christ's church. Those are the motives. Now look at the marks. What does it mean to have unity? If this is true, or since these things are true, or because these things are true, notice what Paul says next. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, notice first what he says here, make my joy complete. Paul not only appealed to the Philippians on the basis of, uh, of their relationship with Christ, he also appealed to them based on their relationship with him. And, and he had already mentioned that they had been a great source of joy for him, um, he was their spiritual father. He was the founder of the church in Philippi. In chapter 1, he, he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them my joy and my crown. Chapter 4, verse 10, that, that uh, their generous support of him caused him to rejoice greatly in the Lord. And so he already communicated, hey, you guys have brought me a lot of joy, but there's something else you could do that could bring me even more 
joy that could round off my joy. My, my joy cup is kind of filled almost to the brim, but there's something you do that causes that to overflow. What was that? Well, it was to be unified. It was to be unified. Any loving, caring pastor longs for the sheep that he shepherds to get along with one another. In fact, in Galatians, interesting passage here, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul gives this lengthy exhortation to the churches in the region of Galatia, and he says this, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. It's true, sheep bite. And they don't just bite their shepherds, sometimes they bite each other. And they fight against one another, they bite and devour one another. And he's saying, don't do that. You need to, those are fleshly things. That's not walking in the spirit. And he goes on to list the deeds of the flesh, verse 19, are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And you think, okay, that's cool, I'm not guilty of any of those, but how about this? Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so Paul was constantly exhorting the churches that he planted to, to get along with one another, to be united. And by the way, um, you as a sheep or a church member should want to be a blessing, a joy to your leaders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with what? Remember? Joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. And so here was Paul, a leader of the Philippian church, a leader of these believers, a spiritual dad, the founder of the church, and he's appealing to them. Hey, listen, I want you to obey these commands um, so that I could have joy and not be grieved. But, But notice, rather than threatening them, he sought to motivate them toward unity by speaking tenderly to them like a dad might speak to a, a beloved son who has maybe wandered away or disobeyed. You may have had a conversation like this with one of your kids where you, you say something like this, listen, haven't, haven't, your, haven't, haven't we loved you? Haven't we encouraged you? Haven't we shown you care and compassion? And haven't we fed you and clothed you and provided you a bed to sleep in and a roof over your head since and because all these things are true, is it too much to ask that you would bring us joy and not grief? I and mean, that's a hard conversation to have with your kid, right? But it's much better than yelling and screaming at them, right? And saying, you, whatever, you know, you're not doing this and you're just nothing but this. And you say, hey, it's the least we could ask after all we've done, after all we've experienced, you've experienced under our loving provision and leadership. And the point is that Christ has provided all this for us. He, he's given us everything that we need, and we should do everything we can to bring him joy by getting along with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, you think about it. After all that Christ has given us is our spiritual father, if you will, and he looks down and he sees us fighting amongst ourselves like a bunch of bratty brothers and sisters. It doesn't bring him joy. It brings him grief. And so Paul says, make my joy complete. And then he goes on to explain what, what it looks like to get along. What, what would make him happy? What would bring him even greater joy than he already had? And he, he, he listed four marks of unity here, which are based on, by the way, the four realities that we enjoy in our relationship with Christ. They're connected to what, is, what, he just, what he's already listed in verse 1. And these should be four responses to the four realities. And so what, what is our response in relationship with other Christians? Well, we should be of the same mind 
In other words, we should think alike. Uh, Secondly, we should maintain the same love. In other words, we should love one another. In the same way we've been loved by Christ, we should love one another. We need to be united in the same spirit. I think this is obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit who has made us one. When we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ, he, he places us, he baptizes us and places us in the body of Christ and he knits us together with the other members of the body of Christ. And then finally it says, intent on one purpose, focused on the same person. In other words, we all have the same goal. So verse 2 describes what unity looks like in the church. It's a unified, single-minded commitment to a common cause. You say, what's that cause? Well, we're together for what? What does our title say? The cause is what? The gospel. And unity is a byproduct of the gospel. And this is, don't miss this. Wake up, okay, if you fell asleep already. Wake up, listen to this, okay, because this is very critical to understand that, that unity is a byproduct of the gospel. In other words, our lives have been transformed by the gospel and, and, and our, uh, we've, we've, been, we've been united by the gospel so that we can partner together in proclaiming the gospel to others. But if the unbelieving world sees that we're not united, then we betray the transforming, unifying power of the gospel. One commentator said this, unity is the very essence of Christian life. He says it is the way in which Christians display outwardly what the gospel is and means to them. And then he said this, unity is the hallmark of the gospel. Unity is the hallmark of the gospel. In other words, what is the world going to think if they see us not getting along, not being unified, not being one mind, one heart, striving together for the work of the gospel? We're fighting and bickering among ourselves, and we bring the gospel to them like, seriously? I don't need any of that. Whatever that is you're trying to explain to me, I don't want that. I don't need that. Because I'm, apparently it's not doing anything in, in, in your life or in the life of your church. You guys are just as bad, if not worse, than what's going on in my office or in my home or in my subdivision. It's, it's, it's the same bickering and squabbling. And, and, and by the way, churches are notorious for this stuff, are we not? We have a bad rap. And unfortunately, we've earned it. And so if unity is the hallmark of the gospel, then, it, then for no other reason than for the cause of the gospel that we should be unified, that we should set aside our petty differences and disagreements for a greater good. And so we've been granted this kind of unity in Christ. This is what Christ desires of us, but it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come effortlessly. We need to work at it. And so... In verses 3 and 4, Paul told us how we achieve and maintain this, this kind of unity. How, how do we achieve this? How do we, how do we um, enjoy this kind of unity? What are the, the means to this unity? Well, this is what he said. Here you go. You want to know how to experience this kind of unity? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Calvin said that in this first phrase, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, that Paul called out the two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. Here they are. Selfishness or empty conceit. These are the two things that disrupt the church more than anything else. And so we need to understand what these two things are and how they flesh themselves out in our lives so that we can avoid these things. He says, do nothing, absolutely nothing from selfishness. 
Literally selfish ambition. If you remember, that was the word that Paul used to describe his opponents back in chapter 1, verse 17. While he was in jail, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. In other words, they weren't thinking about Paul. They weren't thinking about Christ. They weren't thinking about the lost. They were thinking about themselves. This word selfish ambition was also used and described by, by James in James chapter 3. Turn over there for a second. This is a critical cross-reference here. James chapter 3, verse 14. James was addressing some disunity apparently among the believers uh, who, are, who are scattered all over Asia. And he's addressing this issue that true believers get along with one another Uh, James chapter 3, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Wow. So who is the ultimate source of selfishness? Satan himself. This is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So when there's jealousy, when there's selfish ambition, when there's, when there's arrogance and pride, uh, all there is is division. But, verse 17, the wisdom from above, this is what comes from God. That stuff comes from Satan. This stuff comes from God. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so what is the opposite of selfish ambition? It is, it is the, the desire to make peace. And how do you do that? Well, you need to be peaceable. You need to be gentle. You need to be reasonable. You need to be full of mercy. You need to be unwavering. You need to not be a hypocrite. Oh, those, are, those are necessary qualities or attributes in order to avoid this selfish ambition that, that James and, and Paul both talked about. Let me try to make this even more precise or more practical. What is, what is this selfishness or selfish ambition that Paul is talking about? It's, it's pursuing things for yourself. That's simply what it means. It's pursuing things for yourself. It's putting your needs and your wants before everyone else's. It's jockeying for position. It's, it's thinking of yourself instead of others. It's, it's seeking personal gain. It's promoting your own agenda. It's insisting on getting your own way. It's desiring to be first. It's calling shotgun. We've all done it. Or your kids might do it. Or somebody else's kids, not your kids, somebody else's kids do this, right? You're walking to the car and somebody inevitably says what? Shotgun. What are they saying? I call the front passenger seat, I'm riding shotgun, and typically why do people want to ride shotgun? Because that's the, if you're not driving, that's the next best seat in the house. In the car, right? You don't want to be cramped in the back or especially not in the way, way back. And so you're, shotgun! I was thinking about this the other day, how thankful I am for uh, the men that God has provided to serve alongside me here at Lakeside Bible Church. We go out to lunch every Tuesday as a staff, pastoral staff, and, and uh, we all, as we're heading to one of our cars to get in, um, I've yet to hear any of the staff call shotgun. In fact, all of them will inevitably go to the back seat, back door, and open it up and get in. And they're leaving the front seat, the shotgun position, for somebody else. And again, I think that's just a very simple, you say, well, that's a big whoop-de-doo. Well, that's, that's not a, just a, that is a big whoop-de-doo. Because guess what? That demonstrates a humble servant heart. They're not thinking of themselves. They're thinking about others above themselves. They want somebody else to get that seat. 
This selfish ambition, this selfishness is, another way to say it, is the spirit of diatrophies. Remember that guy? 3 John verse 9. John says, I wrote something to the church, but diatrophies, who loves to be first among them, doesn't accept what we say. We don't ever want to have that diatrophies spirit. I, I, I'm first, I'm first. There, there's something, you know, there's a line to be made to get some you got to jump up and be the first one in line. Or somebody brings out a, you know, a batch of, fresh batch of cookies, and you're the first one to grab a handful, right? And, or start licking them, right? So your mom can't say you can't eat them all, right? But you, you're always thinking first. It's, it's me first. It's the spirit of diatrophies. That's selfishness. That's selfish ambition. Then there's this thing called empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Literally vain glory, personal vanity. In other words, you're letting your ego get in the way. You're seeking praise and, and glory for yourself. You're, you're, you're thinking you're a big deal. You're thinking highly of yourself. You're, you have a show-off attitude. It's like the basketball player who wants to get all the glory and so he's a ball hog and that destroys the unity of the team. Or a musician who, who wants to be heard above all the, the, the rest of the other instruments and musicians and so they destroy the harmony of the orchestra. Can you imagine if our instrumentalists were, 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 had, had empty conceit and they were wanting to be heard? Listen to me play the piano, listen to me play the guitar, listen to the drums, right? It would not sound harmonious, would it? I'll never forget hearing about um, someone who asked a conductor of an orchestra what was the hardest instrument to play, and the conductor said, second fiddle. Second fiddle is the hardest instrument to play. It's easy to get first fiddle. See, I, got a, I got a list of guys or gals that want to play first fiddle. They want to be the leader. They want to sit in that first seat, and everybody knows that's the first fiddle. But it's very difficult to find somebody who can play second fiddle with the same passion and the same zeal and the same joy and the same faithfulness as first fiddle. Listen, God calls us to play second fiddle. Not just on the night the orchestra plays, but every day, all day, in our marriages, in our families, with our brothers and sisters, with our co-workers, our classmates, with our fellow church members, we are to play second fiddle. One of my favorite games to play when I was a little kid during uh, wintertime, back in Massachusetts, we get a lot of snow, and so the, 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 the trucks would come in, the plows would come into our school playground and, uh, and push all the snow off the parking lot into these big mounds around the edge of the parking lot. And so during the winter months, you know, everything always changes at recess. You'd run out there and you'd always have something you were doing for a month or two, right? And that was the hot thing to do. And so during the winter months, there was only one thing that we did, at least the guys, and that was play King of the Hill. That was my favorite game. And so what we'd do, we'd, we'd, the bell would ring, we'd throw on our coats and our boots, and we would run for the tallest snow pile we could see in the parking lot. And whoever got there first was the King of the Hill. And everyone else would spend the entire half hour of recess trying to pull that guy off the top of that hill and assert himself on the top of the hill so he could be king of the hill. And so for 30 minutes, we're just scrapping and tearing and clawing and dragging and kicking and, you know, trying to get to the top of that hill and throwing everybody off so we could be on the top of the hill. The sad thing is most of us are still playing that game. We're just not on a snowbank. We're in a workplace or at school, or in our homes, or in church. We're playing king of the hill. We're scrapping. We're fighting to get on top. What is the root of these two attitudes, by the way? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Really, they can be combined into one sin, which is the biggest hindrance to unity. Starts with a P, ends with a R. Yeah, you got it. Pride, right? It's pride. 
And what is pride? It's essentially thinking and acting like you are the most important person in the universe. That's what pride is. It's all about you. And that's why Paul said what he said next. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, or just don't be prideful, but with what? I can't hear you. Humility of mind. Humility of mind. This word, humility here, is only used right here. The only time it's used, uh, this particular word for humility in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else in any other ancient Greek writings. In fact, there was no Greek word in the Greek language for humility. Figure that. Because humility was a foreign concept in the Greek culture. I mean, they prided themselves in being the superior race. They, they considered themselves better than everyone else. In their minds, they were the offspring of the gods. Humility? What's that? Who needs that? Well, Christians need that. And so Paul apparently coined a word for humility. And it was, and it was from a word used to describe in that day the mentality of a slave. It was a term of derision. It was, it was not considered a virtue by any means. To the pagan of that day, humility was not admired. It was not sought after. And yet Paul introduced this, this new concept to the believers in Philippi. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. In other words, think about other people as better than you. Regard them as superior to you. View yourself as less important than they are. Some of you might be thinking, well, what if I am better than they are? <laughs> well, we'll pray for you, okay? <laughs> but the reality is that may be true, that you, be, you may be smarter than others or richer than others or more talented or more successful or, or even more spiritually mature than others. And if that's true, then you better thank God for his grace in your life, that he's blessed you. And it's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I, I can't take any credit for any of this. It's, it's because of the grace of God in my life. I think the key here is when it comes to humbly regarding others as more important than yourself, it's, it's not to compare your strengths with their faults, that's easy to do, but to focus on our faults in compared to their strengths. The old commentator Matthew Henry provides some, some practical help in this regard. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, be severe upon your own faults and charitable in our judgments of others. Be quick in observing our own defects and infirmities, but be ready to overlook and make favorable allowances for the defects of others. We must esteem the good which is in others above that which is in ourselves, for we best know our unworthiness and imperfections. In other words, it's back to that little saying that we use around here, that we're the worst sinner we know. Are you the worst sinner you know? I'm the worst sinner I know. And guess what? That's how Paul viewed himself. 1 Corinthians 15.9, he considered himself the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, the very least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he was the foremost of all sinners. He was the worst sinner he knew. He, Paul honestly believed that he was the worst sinner on the planet. And he said, and that's why God saved me, so that everyone would know if God could save me, he could save anybody. What's the point? By the way, there, there was a progression there you can see in Paul's writings from 1 Corinthians to Ephesians to 1 Timothy. It wasn't like Paul was instantly humble the, the day he got saved. That doesn't happen to any of us, right? It was a progression that, that at first, yeah, I'm the least of the apostles, then I'm the very least of all saints. 
And then at the end of his life, he says, you know, I'm just the worst sinner I know. And that, that's hopefully the progression that you're seeing in your life, that, that, that the more you grow in Christ, the more humble you're becoming. That's not a good sign if, if, if you're, you're getting more prideful. The mark of a true Christian is you become more humble over the years. And so the point is how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, will determine how we see others. Paul didn't think much of himself, and so it was easy for him to consider others better than himself. Paul gave some great advice to, to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For though through the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And then in the same chapter, he says, if possible, so, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It requires for you to think lowly of yourself, not highly of yourself. And I think when it comes down to it, a humble person is, is not just someone who doesn't think about themselves or doesn't think much of themselves, I guess, but they just don't think of themselves at all. That's, that's true Humility. It's not that you don't think much of yourself. That sounds spiritual. I don't think much of myself. But really, in the end of the day, it's that you don't think of yourself at all. How is this humility of mind? By the way, this is all going on. It's, it's something that happens in our minds. That's where it starts with humility of mind. How does this humility of mind evidenced? Well, it's shown by how we treat others. Someone who truly has a humble mind has a servant's heart. And so I think the greatest test of a person's humility is their willingness to, to serve others no matter who they are or what it might cost. So Paul says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Then he says in verse 4, do not look out for your own personal interests. And in my translation, they add the word merely. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. The point is, we know you all look out for your own interests. That's natural. It's kind of like love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus was assuming you already love yourself. Now you just got to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Don't just merely look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. This is the opposite of selfishness. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others. Forget about getting your needs met and focus on meeting the needs of others. Instead of insisting on getting your way, defer to what others want. Rather, rather than looking out for, for number one, put yourself second for a change. Or how about third? Technically, you're third. There's a movement on the internet called I Am Second, which is a great... They bring in Christians to share their testimony. I Am Second. It's a great concept. Well, technically, it should be I am third. Joe White, uh, the director of Kennecook Camps, wrote a book called I Am Third. How, how do you end up third? Who's first? God. Who's second? Others. You're third. We used to have a little rhyme we would share with our kids when they were little. One, two, three. God, others, me. One, two, three, God, others, me. Just remember that. It's, it's not about you. It's about God first, and then it's about others, and then it's about you. I'll never forget. I can see it like it was yesterday in my mind's eye, sitting in the classroom at Word of Life Bible Institute as a freshman, it was kind of a gap year, if you will, for those of you that understand that concept. That right out of high school, I decided to go to one year of Bible college and say, I'm going to just give one year of my life, devote one year of my life to studying the Bible and trust God that he's going to direct me uh, through that study uh, to, to where he wants me to go, how he wants me to serve. And so I went to Word of Life Bible Institute, and I was sitting there, and, and, and what a tremendous experience. We had some of the best uh, teaching uh, in the world, world-class teachers coming in, 
Charles Ryrie coming in, uh, Howard Hendricks coming in, um, other great teachers uh, from these great Bible colleges and seminaries, they would come in and teach for a week. And we would go through the Bible, went through the Bible two times in a year, once in a Bible survey fashion and once in a kind of an expositional fashion. And, uh, fashion. and so uh, these men would come in and they would teach a book of the Bible for the week. And I'll never forget when, when Joe Stoll, who used to um, be the president of Moody Bible Institute uh, in Chicago, came to teach the book of Philippians. And I was so blessed and encouraged by his, um, the way he just so practically explained the book of Philippians to us. And, but I'll never forget when he, he came to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and he says, I want to I teach you a way to look at this passage or to remember this passage or to apply this passage. And he simply said, it's called the servant-saint perspective. I've shared this with you before. And I remember, this was the olden days, I'm dating myself, he had that little thing, I don't even know what it's called anymore, with the little thing, you know, and you put the little transparencies and you draw things and it shoots it up on the screen. <laughs> it was one of those deals, right? And so he was drawing this picture, and, and what he, what, what, basically this is what he drew. So this is the servant's same perspective. He said, when you come to church, we're talking about the church in Philippi, when, when, when the believers in Philippi walked into the doors of the church, when the believers at Lakeside walk into the doors of this church on Sunday morning, uh, by nature... They are thinking of themselves as the saint. Here I am, I'm a saint, I'm walking in the door, and everyone else that I come into contact with is a servant. And so they exist to serve me. I am here to be served, right? And they're here to serve me. Well, you, can you imagine, right, if everyone has that mindset, that perspective when they walk in the doors of the church, that we're the saints and we're all waiting to be served, there's going to be a lot of hurt feelings, there's going to be a lot of offenses going on, Right? But what if you flip that around and have the servant perspective when you walk into the doors of the church and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm a servant and everyone else around me is a saint and I exist to serve them. And so you got everybody thinking of themselves as a servant and they're running around serving everybody else. And guess what? People are getting blessed, they're being ministered to, they're being served. I mean, it's the servant same perspective. It's all in your mind. It's a perspective with humility of mind. And so this is, has to happen up here between our ears. First, it starts up here, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about one another. And when this, this humble, selfless servant attitude prevails in a local church, it will revolutionize the relationships in that church. And by the way, this principle applies to your home as well. Husbands, as you drive into the driveway and you come home, walk in the house after a long day of work, and if you've, it's, it's natural to think, you know, I'm the saint, and I've just been working all day to provide for my wife and my kids, and I'm, now it's their turn to serve me. I've been serving them all day, now it's their turn to serve me. And you walk in and you expect to be served while well, you walk in and there's just chaos going on in the house. And you're not feeling very well served, right? And you've got to engage in the situation and, and you get upset and angry. Why? Because you had this perspective that you were there to be served rather than, you know, I'm coming home to continue to serve. Now, now, this is when my day really begins. This is when I really start to serve, my wife and my kids. Or, brothers and sisters, you're sitting around, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you got a family night and, 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 and it's, it's, it's movie night and so you've got to pick a movie. And so everybody says, I want to watch this movie, I want to watch this movie, I want to, it's like, hey, I'm the saint, you should all want to watch what I want to watch. And say, no, 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 I'm the servant, so hey, let's watch what you want to watch. Or there's that last piece of pizza, right? And everybody's eyeing it, wondering who's going to get it, right? And what does a servant do? The saint says, yes, that, that piece belongs to me. I deserve to eat that piece of pizza have that piece of pizza because I'm the saint. Everybody else is servant. No. If you say, no, I'm the servant. I don't deserve that piece of pizza. Somebody else is here. You have it. Revolutionary. You say, how does that happen? How, how, how can I learn this perspective? Well, it's in the next verse. Verse 5. Have this attitude. We're talking about an attitude here. What Paul's describing is an attitude. It's a humble, selfless attitude, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate example of what it looks like to humbly and selflessly serve others. He is the model of selfless humility. And he sought to model this, obviously, to his disciples while he was here on earth. If you just turn quickly back to Mark chapter 10, and I want us just to see a couple connections here as we wrap things up this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 Here was the God of the universe who left his throne in heaven, came and took on flesh. We know that is the incarnation, what we are celebrating this season of Christmas. And then he's here on this earth collecting 12 guys to train and equip, to carry on his mission after he died and was resurrected and went back to heaven. And he got a bunch of knuckleheads. Notice Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, by the way, they were referred to elsewhere as the sons of thunder. That was their nickname. Seems like they must have drove Harleys or something, had some leather coats, you know, sons of thunder, kind of like bikers or something. James and John, they were, they were radical guys. They were feisty guys, probably, you know, big strapping fishermen, kind of like Peter was. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Really? You're going to ask the God of the universe to do something for you. I want you to do what, what, I, what, what I'm going to ask you to do. They, they just didn't have a clue. They said to him, grant that we may sit on one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. They, they saw this thing coming. They saw that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, or so they thought, and set up his throne, overthrow Rome, set up his throne, and there was going to be a kingdom. And somebody had to sit on his left and his right hand side, and they wanted to be those two guys. They wanted to be considered for those positions. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I'm being baptized? In other words, you guys have no clue what you're you're asking for. This is not going to go down the way you think it's going down. Are you ready to die with me is what he's saying. They said to him, we are able. Again, they didn't know what they were talking about. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. In other words, guess what? You are going to die for me. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now check this out. It wasn't just James and John that had issue here. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They were upset with James and John that they had even had the audacity to ask Jesus this. I don't think it was so much that, but that they had got to Jesus first because they wanted to be considered for those roles as well. And Jesus saw this whole thing. He knew exactly what was going on in these guys' hearts. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, I know the way where you guys are getting this from because that's the way the world thinks when it comes to leadership, lording it over an authority. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. I don't think they were expecting to hear that. And then he gave the reason. Why should you stop trying to be first? Because that's what they were doing. They had the diatrophies. They had a desire to be first. They wanted to be first. Pick me, pick me. He says, listen, you don't... You shouldn't want to be first. You should want to be a slave of everyone. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Jesus said, I came not to be served. I mean, if there's anyone here who, who should have been served, it's me. But I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We can't be absolutely certain what happened next. But based on the other Gospels and what they record about the ongoing dispute among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest, they had the Muhammad Ali syndrome. They were like, I am the greatest. And they were arguing, arguing about who was the greatest. I think it was at that very moment that Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet. John 13. This is how he launched the upper room discourse. He had pulled his disciples aside and said, hey guys, we need to spend some time together because I need to get you ready for what's about to happen. And it says, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which, with which he was girded. You know the story. The disciples had been, Jesus asked them to prepare a place for them to have the Lord's Supper or have Passover together. And, 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 and yet uh, somehow they, in all the commotion, they had overlooked securing a servant. Someone who would stand by the door and when the men walked in with their sandals, take the sandals off, wash the mud off their feet, dry it off, and then they'll go sit down because you're going to be laying down with your feet stuck in somebody else's face during dinner time. You wanted to have clean feet. Apparently they're all sitting there with you know, dirty feet feeling all very awkward and uncomfortable, but nobody was about to go over to that bowl. There was, the bowl and water were there, the towel was there, but no servant. But not one of them was about to get up and lower themselves to that position. And then Jesus stands up and goes over and he plays the slave. He plays the role of the slave. Talk about awkward for those disciples, and they got the point. They got the point. And so the first thing that Jesus needed to prepare his disciples for in that upper room was to help them to get over themselves. Because up until that point, it was about themselves. Who is the greatest, and who's going to sit on his right, who's going to sit on his left? And so in order to confront them and correct their prideful, self-seeking attitude, Jesus humbly assumed the role of a lowly servant and he went around that table and he washed their dirty, smelly feet. And in doing so, he, he provided them an unforgettable object lesson. Beloved, can I just liberate you for a second? I mean, this might, like, transform your life. What am I about to say? So listen carefully. It's not about you. It's not about you. God didn't save you and me and place us in this church to be served, but to give ourselves up for other people in this church. God served us by coming down from heaven on high and dying on the cross. Listen, we serve one another by coming down off our high horse and dying to ourselves. I was walking with Kelly yesterday and obviously mulling this all over in my mind and so I just said to her, hey, what's the key to unity? And I'm looking for, you know, the right answer. Humility, selflessness, and she just looks at me as we're walking along. She says, dying to self. I'm like, wow, that's even better than what I was thinking. And it's true, that is, that is the key to unity, is dying to self. I want to read for you a poem that, I don't know the author, but it's called Dying to Self. And it's something that all of us need to learn to do by the grace of God. When you're forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught and you don't sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil, to, evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, 
and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take all in a very patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you're content with any food, any offering, any climate, any society, any raiment, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When, you're never, when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God, while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to yourself. Listen, obviously that, none of that comes natural to any of us. In fact, it's impossible for us to do this in our own strength. And the only way it's possible for us to die to ourselves and humbly and selflessly serve others is through the power of Jesus Christ who died for us. And we need to remember that, that we can do all things through Christ. He not only models this for us, he is also the means of doing this. And again, by his grace, beloved, we have been included in something that is way bigger than ourselves. Aren't you glad that it's not about you? It's not about me? This is way bigger than any of us. It's all about joyfully partnering together for the cause of Christ and living more for him, living more for Christ than for ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would perfect this church in unity so that when anyone in this community looks at us or sees how people of all different types and statures and statuses from all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences can, can live and work together in, in harmony, that they will know that what we believe is true, that God does love them and has sent his son to die for them, and that he has the power to transform their lives just as he has transformed ours. And Lord, may it be for this cause, the cause of Christ, that we live and for this cause that we'd be even willing to die. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.